All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of 25 Live. I'm actually on location, and we had some technical difficulties. So because of that, I'm going to pull out the very first best of uh, episode. So I've got a lot more speakers lined up in the coming weeks, but for now, we'll do some best of. And uh, the first one I'm going to open up with is my old pal, Dr. Sarah Jenke. And on this clip, she's going to talk about sleep deprivation, which is something I know all too much about. So here's Sarah. That's actually a good segue. I know this this next topic I'm going to throw out there, I know you're intrigued by it because I know we talked about it kind of uh, just last month in Miami, uh, is the sleep deprivation, uh, yeah. the shift work. I mean, this is kind of, uh, we're learning a lot about this, a lot of new things, but we realize kind of how screwed up generally we are and, and like you said it's it's different for for stations and departments and everything else i know i was on the medic last night i told you earlier uh before we started the call uh, i didn't have anything after 10 o'clock and that is that is an absolute rarity it is it is like a christmas morning here for me because of that today that is yeah. that's not the norm and i know that's not the norm for most people either no it's not and you know so the more i learn about sleep i've always known sleep is important but um, and, and a great book recommendation that came to me, two or three people that I talked to had recommended this book. So I picked it up and it's fantastic. I think it's Dr. Walker out of California and it's a book called Why We Sleep. And it overviews all of sleep. It kind of gives a general overview of sleep and its function and, and the structure and the amount of sleep you need and that kind of stuff. But um, the, the really there's not a health a cycle in your body or a health parameter that's not affected by sleep. And it's just so important. I think it doesn't get, you know, it feels like, well, we can fit it in, but really the more research that comes out on, on, um, sleep, I really think it does have to be a priority because I think it kind of underlies every, not kind of, it does underlie every other health risk that, that, um, people have that firefighters have. And when you look at the research on shift work, I mean, across um, the board, you have, negative health outcomes related to shift work. So you, know, you see increased risks of everything from behavioral health concerns to um, cancer, cardiovascular disease. I mean, shift work is shift work is, is bad for your health because there's the kind of underlying rhythms of your body, the circadian rhythms and the way your mm-hmm. body processes things, the way your mind processes things that are really controlled by when you sleep and how much you sleep. And people are really bad at judging their own um, their own impairment when it comes to sleep too, which is interesting. But I think you know one of the challenges with the fire services, you know, someone has to be up at two a.m. when a car accident happens, or grandma gets um, falls down and gets stuck in the bathroom, and someone's. Why was grandma up at two a.m.? That's what I want to know. She had to go to the bathroom. Okay, I do too. (laughs) (laughs) See. That's why. Yeah. But right, that's when that call comes in and you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to have to get up, but someone's got to get up and do that. But sure. it's also this challenge of like, it's, it's just so bad for your health. It's so bad for your health um, to have that interrupted sleep and have 25 years of interrupted sleep. And, you know, and then, I mean, God forbid you're in the volunteer fire service and you have your scanner. On. I mean, I grew up with a scanner in the house all the time. Like, to have the scanner on 24 seven, like you never get a good night's sleep. So yeah, it's rough. Oh, I agree. No, it's, I think, and I don't know if it'll be in, in 
the terms of when you know by the time my career is done. But the the way we look at sleep in the fire service just needs to be just completely rechanged. You know, we need to have a way to where we have um, better quality sleep, more of an opportunity to sleep um, in in uninterrupted, uninterrupted. You know, I know there's still departments out there to where you hear everything else at the other stations as well. So if another station goes out, you get woken up for that too, even though you're not going out. And that's just, it's just unnecessary. And also the whole, the mindset of naps, even, you know, Mm. naps are a bad thing. How dare us really, I mean, you know, city officials generally don't even like the fact that we're sleeping at all on duty uh, at night, let alone taking naps. But I mean, that's, that's an important thing. And it's, and I also, and it made me think back when I started learning more about this, I, I went to, uh, about two and a half years ago, I was in Europe, spent some time in Sweden and also in England, cause kind of torn to the, the different brigades and seeing how they do things. And I remember going to two large brigades there and, uh, the labor management had a big, uh, issues, the contracts and, and everything else. And, and as a punishment, management actually took out all the beds of these fire departments these huge brigades with thousands of people took them out they're all stored in a warehouse and when those guys want to sleep at night they're getting in sleeping bags or air mattresses i mean it's just crazy i would love to see the data on their um things like injuries after that i'd also love to see um any data that they have like in terms of long-term health effects that's just I mean, I don't want to say that's stupid because that oversimplifies it, but that's so short-sighted. I, I just sleep is so important. I, I yeah. Sometimes choices are not made really thinking about the actual people it's going to affect. But well, I would, and I, I just don't think they understand it. They don't. Uh, the consequences aren't aren't uh, really widely known by the norm person. Not even really by the fire service. I mean, there's certain people, you and I are aware of it, and we're trying to get word out, but it's going to take a while. Well, and and like I said, people are bad at being able to know their own, like how well rested they are. And so there, and there has been quite a bit of research looking at like, can you just make up for sleep? Like, can you go without sleep during the week and then make up for it on the weekends? And really the answer is no. Um, there are, and, and people are really unaware of it. So if you ask, if you test people like they're on their cognition or learning or memory and um, you see impairments, they've done this where they go into, into labs and they control the environment and then they limit the amount of sleep and people will say that they don't feel tired, but you see pretty quickly deficits. And then the other thing I hear is a lot of people say, um, oh yeah, you know, I only need four or five hours of sleep each night. And sure. um the research on that suggests that there is a genetic um, marker for people who really are fine with limited sleep. Um, and so there are people that that have that and can do that. But that if you look at the frequency of it, when they look at, um, you know, kind of general population, the, the rate of that, you're more likely to be struck by lightning than to have that. Okay. Really, really well, that, puts it in, that kind of puts it in perspective. Yeah. So if you think about, you know, if you think about it, it seems like that you don't need that much sleep. But, you know, if you're able to like doze off when sitting at a meeting, if you're or, or you know, if you sit down and watch TV and you fall asleep, then you're not getting enough sleep. So the other thing that really they look at it and a lot of some of the research that's come out of um, Harvard with firefighters looks at uh, car accidents and injuries. 
And that's another area where, you know, sleepy driving is under-recognized as one of the things that is really dangerous um, in both in the fire service and in the general population. But, you know, you have, there was a, Walker has this great chapter on microsleeps and he talks about how, you know, the sleepy driving, you know, I, sometimes you'll be driving, especially like I think about on your way home when you've been up all night and you have that kind of like, it feels like a long wink and you like it either while you're driving, like at a stop sign or um, you're driving down the street, it feels like a long blink, like, oh my God, I almost fell asleep there. You actually are getting these moments of sleep. But the interesting thing about that is your body can basically be paralyzed for a few seconds. So what he talks about in his book is how compares it to drunk driving. And what you see a lot of times with drunk driving accidents is, you know, people, their movements impaired, right? And so they will um, drive, see that they're about to hit something and try and swerve. And what you see with the um, sleepy driving and the impaired driving from lack of sleep is that even if they see it, they basically are, the body's paralyzed. It's trying to kind of repair itself. And so there's more head on collisions. So I'm not suggesting that people should dr- drive. Um, but you know, it is, it's not just a minor thing. It's not a, you know, it's not, it's not lacking in danger. I, I often worry about like, you know, I, for me, I've got a 50 minute drive home. It's not mm-hmm. that big of a deal. But we have, you know, we we had a residency rule for the longest time here in my city, and they finally got that lifted. So now we have people living in Columbus and Cincinnati. Yeah. We have somebody who lives in Indiana. I mean, they're they're driving an hour, hour and a half home every third day, and it, you know, a lot of them are still on a medic every single day. I don't know how to make that drive. Yeah. Oh, I've I, seen. I have a fifteen minute one. They have. You know, hour plus. I mean, it's it's kind of asking for it in a way, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, the other thing to it, like I, I mentioned, sleep quality. I, I know a thing that helped me was I got a CPAP machine. Yeah. And so that's other sleep disorders in the fire service are way under-recognized, exactly. under-treated. They did, when there was a survey, um, a survey that was done of departments around the country, and I want to say... I, I would say, don't quote me on this, but it's going on record at this moment. Um, I, it was around 40%, I think about 36% of firefighters had, um, seemed to have, when screened, had likely sleep um, sleep disturbances or, or sleep, um, it wasn't all sleep apnea, but uh, some sort of sleep issue. And often it was undiagnosed and untreated. So I would definitely encourage folks to you know, be pay attention, get sleep studies if they're feeling that they're waking up tired and that kind of stuff. Because, you know, with sleep apnea, you basically don't get a full night's sleep. Your body wakes up over and over no. and over. No, and, and I can, I will speak from experience, you know, let's say beforehand I'd have eight hours of sleep. Um, the quality of sleep wasn't there. Yeah. So now, even if I get five or six hours of sleep and I'm on a CPAP machine, I feel so much better. I mean, I may not have slept technically slept as long or at least for the duration, but the quality is so much better and I feel better in the morning and I'm able to just function much better because of it. So it's definitely worth looking into. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree. Well, and I think too, so the other thing I've, I've, uh, I think is interesting is like the role that sleep plays with cognition and like consolidation of memories. And I wonder if some of that is, uh, you know, we obviously see some concerns and, and a lot of firefighters talk about things like flashbacks to bad calls and 
those types of things, then, you know, not even, not always even like in a um, diagnosable PTSD way, but um, I do wonder how much of that is, is augmented by issues with sleep. So it's interesting. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know. I think that there's a lot more, I, I hear a lot more about sleep now and I get asked a lot more questions about sleep now than I ever have. Um, so I think it, people are paying more attention to it. There was um, Joel Billings, who's now down in um, a university in Florida, but just finished his PhD in Oklahoma, did a study. And he looked at sleep and he looked at different shifts. And, um, you know, while there was, it was a smaller study because it was a dissertation, he had some really interesting findings. And one of them being looking at sleep opportunity and just the amount of time that people were able to sleep when they were on the job and on different shifts. And his data suggests that one thing that may influence it more than the shift is the shift time of shift change. So if you think about like a shift change that happens later in the morning, you know, a lot of departments switch at like seven. And so if you have to be up and ready to leave at seven, you're waking up at 530 or six. And so if you, his data suggests that if you switch it, so it's later, um, that it might help with sleep, sleep quality and quantity. So there are a couple departments that have, um, couple of departments I've heard of out in the West where they just switched to a 6 p.m. shift change. Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting thing to think about. And then um, I know, I think it's Austin does a, um, yeah, Austin does a noon shift change. Yeah, so, you know, I, I thought, uh, I worked with uh, Ben Fire District Number 4 in Louisiana. They came out, they come in at 5 o'clock. And I was, the more I heard their schedule, I was intrigued. But when I thought about my department in particular, I was like, there's no way that it would ever go for that because yeah. we would be zombies that, that, you know, for most of that shift. Yeah. 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 But, so, but yeah. It, for, for slower departments, that yeah. definitely works. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it, I definitely, I think I, I think differently about sleep than I used to. I used to, when I was younger, I'm old now, by the way, I think you know that. Uh, I think we're the same age, so you're, I would say uh, you're actually uh, you're, you're older than Shut me. Up. But anyway, anyway, um, the whole and I, I know you're not going to get this quote, and some people may the whole the Warren Zevon song "I'll Sleep When I'm Dead." That's yeah. I think how I was for the longest time, and I finally you know whatever I'll I will just make it through. I'll keep going, and over the years I realized now sleep is pretty important, and I need to get away from that. So it's funny you should say that. Um, again, back to Dr. Walker addresses that in his uh, in his book. And actually, there's research to suggest that that whole concept of "I'll sleep when I de- when I'm dead." If you don't get appropriate sleep, you are probably actually bringing. Um, you know, there are mortality studies, and you likely are bringing death on sooner. So you're kind of facilitating that happening sooner rather than later um, if you're not getting sleep. So you'll sleep when you're dead because dead will happen sooner than it would otherwise. <laughs> All right. Once again, that was my old pal, Dr. Sarah Jenke. Um, I really do mean old. Uh, actually, if you were present and there's video out there from uh, the Brothers Helping Brothers um, Health and Wellness Conference last October, uh, it was actually Sarah's birthday when she spoke. And so I was kind enough to make sure that we had a cake for everybody saying happy birthday to her. She was so happy until she read the actual cake and it said happy 50th birthday when she's really only, well, I don't know if you think she wants me to tell you how old she really is, but that was great fun. 
I got a good kick out of that. So love you, Sarah. Um, but moving on, our, our next guest that I had early on uh, also on the 25 Live was my pal Jen Kramer out of the uh, Akron area. She's with the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance. And in this clip, she discusses firefighters and suicide and some of the signs that we can look for for some of our members that may be having issues. So here's Jen. Now, well, let me, let me ask you this. What are some of the signs that we may see with our fellow firefighters that, that may be struggling with, whether it's, you know, PTSD or suicidal thoughts or depression or anything like that? What, what kind of the things that are abnormal that we should be able to pick up on and, and kind of then try to help them or at least not necessarily help them, but show them the way to get the proper help? Things that I would encourage you to watch out for in each other, um, you know, FBHA's pretty much identified the top five um, suicide warning signs as, you know, isolation. There's a lot of isolation and it's easy to do in the fire service. If somebody is going back and sleeping in their dorm room all the time or they're constantly isolating themselves, they don't want to, you know, sit at the dinner table with you. Isolation's huge. Um, loss of confidence in their skills and abilities. We have first responders, firefighters who forget how to do their job. They're so stressed out that they forget how to put the truck in pump. You know, if somebody's asking you this, and yeah, we're all going to laugh it off because that's the mentality. Oh my gosh, I forget how to put this truck in pump. It might not have been a joke for that person. They might have actually forgot how to do this. Um, sleep deprivation is a huge issue. You know, and it comes with the territory. You guys are expected to run on minimal sleep and to continue to do what you do. But time after time, that causes huge problems. And we all know that, you know, sleep deprivation mimics drunk driving in studies that they've done. Lack of sleep is the equivalent of walking around drunk and it impacts people. And when this, you know, this is part of your job. You're expected to do this. So over time, that sleep deprivation, that person might be angry because they lost sleep, but we need to look out for this person because they might be experiencing a lot of anxiety and stress along with this. Um, suppressed anger is another big sign. And I know that anger is a problem in the fire service in general. You know, we all look at that angry guy on our department. We're like, what is wrong with him? But if it's, you know, more than that, if that angry guy is super angry today, you know, what's going on with him? Or if somebody's usually cheerful and now you're noticing that they just, man, every shift something else is wrong, whether it's at home, it's at work, whatever. The anger is a huge, huge warning sign as well as impulsivity, you know, going out and buying motorcycles, buying guns, doing things that they usually would not do. These are warning signs to us. You know, it, it's acting recklessly. It might not be just buying the motorcycle. It's going and driving it at night on back roads. It's taking risks that you usually would not take. So it's acting impulsively. And, you know, those are just the top five that we've identified to watch out for. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Now, let's say that we are noticing some of these issues with uh, our fellow firefighters. Where can we point them to actually get the help they need? I would encourage you first, before you're trying to get them help, at least outside the department, try to handle it in-house. 
you guys know each other, you work with each other day in and day out. People are going to be more receptive to talk to their partners and the people that they work with on a daily basis. It's just a matter of actually communicating. You have to put down the technology. You actually have to look at each other every now and then, and you have to learn how to talk to each other. You have to just be direct and ask those questions. It might suck to ask, you know, hey, I know you're getting a divorce. You know, how's everything going? Because that's a really difficult situation to be in. But you have to ask those tough questions before you're referring them to mental health therapists or other resources that are out there. And I also. No, I was just going to say that kind of it's uh, whether you have a personal relationship with that individual, that'll be helpful. But also if your department has a peer support team. Absolutely. Absolutely. And most departments are moving towards peer support. And by all means, please use the peer support because people would much rather talk to their peers than to talk to a professional. But there also are a lot of resources out there. If you look on um, our website, ffbha.org, you can scroll down to the resources category and we always list resources there. Um, Our phone numbers are listed on there if you need to get a hold of us personally for help. But I also encourage people to use the share the load um, fire number. It's a hotline just set up for you guys. It's 1-888-731-FIRE. And they also have a texting line now. You can text 741-741. Just text the word badge to them. Um, You know, departments that have EAPs, explore your EAPs and vet these people out before a crisis happens. You have to know who is out there and who is available locally to you. And there are places, I'll tell you, um, I just started with the Safety Forces Support Center in Akron, Ohio. It's a free counseling agency for first responders, and they have trained professionals who know what we're talking about to work with you guys. So find the people out there for big crisis or small crisis. All right. Once again, that was my pal Jen Kramer from the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance. Uh, that was coming from episode six. By the way, Sarah, that was all the way back to episode two. Um, next up, though, we're going from episode 15, which is Paul Erickson and his hot zone fire station design. So in this clip, Paul talks about uh, just his station designs, how you know how they started, and what he was has been able to kind of come up with. And we also talk a little bit at the end about that uh, much-needed hygiene. So here's Paul. There's an awful lot of stuff that we're exposed to also when we get back to the firehouse. And there's a lot of things that we can do to ultimately reduce our risk. So with that being said, I kind of want to just dive right into it and talk about that that hot zone design that to me is so revolutionary. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Jim. Um, hot zone is a design concept that we've generated and been working on refining and developing for about five, six years now. Um, It originally was sparked by a conversation that I had with Cindy L. about 2012-2013. Cindy's the president of the Firefighter Cancer Foundation, and she was giving a talk about the elevated risks of cancer, the high exposures to toxic chemicals and carcinogens, and was starting to formulate the link between what's encountered at the fire scene and these high incidents of cancer. During her talk, she just asked a question, why don't we have some kind of category for our stations that um, 
categorize the spaces by the risk to carcinogens. And as she said that, a light went off, um, and I couldn't wait to talk with her afterwards. To make a long story short, it just seemed like an idea that clicked, and we have subsequently been uh, focusing on categorizing spaces based on their exposure to uh, contaminants and carcinogens. So for instance, in the course of a call, emergency responder gets exposed to toxic chemicals, carcinogens, uh, other kinds of contaminants. It, get, it gets on the personal protective equipment, gets on the tools, gets on the various types of equipment, gloves, masks. That's then, unless it's cleaned at the scene, that's brought back to the station in the apparatus and parked in the apparatus bay. And we previously haven't understood that exposure is actually being harvested at the scene and it's being conveyed back to the station. And then without realizing it, distributed throughout the remainder of the station inadvertently, transferring it into living zones, back into sleeping zones, even being taken home um, on your clothes where your family can potentially be exposed. So the hot zone design simply sets three types of spaces using hazmat thinking, strategy, training, using the hazmat mindset to create a red zone or a hot zone where equipment, apparatus, personnel that are immediately returning from a scene are potentially uh, encountered, encountering high levels of contamination. And then we separate all of the living, working spaces in a fire station from those red zone areas. We categorize them as green, safe, or cool zones, and then pay a great deal of attention to the transition spaces between those two zones. The, uh, the yellow zone becomes really an area where we're focused on cleaning and decontamination. Nice. Very, very good <clears throat> setup. Um, now, this is, uh, I've seen this a lot now in, in new fire station design. Uh, I've been able to go to new firehouses throughout the U.S. and actually Canada that incorporate some type of this, this setup. But we can also, correct me if I'm wrong, there's also a lot of things that we can do in our current stations as far as kind of uh, retrofitting it or, or redoing different areas to help ultimately reduce that exposure and, and help avoid that cancer diagnosis down the road. Yeah, obviously when you're designing a, a new station, you have carte blanche. You have the opportunity to do the very best practices because you're not restricted by existing construction or configurations. With an existing station or renovation, uh, you don't have that latitude. You don't have the opportunity to really make it optimal. But that doesn't mean that you can't do something. So what we've been advocating is people open their eyes to where the risks and the exposures occur and to think about uh, being attentive to, excuse me, <clears throat> not transferring uh, potential contaminants within the station to clean zones. So um, washing your hands is extremely important. Uh, that's one of the highest risks and the, the most common ways to transfer contaminants um, to other parts of the station, to potentially food or water, which could then be ingested 
uh, potentially after you've taken some clothing off uh, or protective gear off, if your hands are contaminated, you might be touching your face or your, your head or your shoulders and the contaminants can transfer into your system via absorption. So we really try to pay attention to ingestion, respiration, breathing it in, or absorption. And if you have uh, the opportunity to create sinks or hand-washing areas between the apparatus bay and the living quarters, that's a really important thing to try to achieve. We also ought to look at the kinds of things that are stored typically in an apparatus bay. It's not uncommon to see an ice machine in the apparatus bay itself, where it's exposed to diesel exhaust, where it's exposed to various kinds of grit and dirt that comes from the apparatus. And of course, if it's exposed to it, it can get into the system and into the ice itself. Many people have seen the, the little trick of taking a bucket of ice um, from the apparatus bay, saving it out, setting it in the living quarters, waiting till it melts, and then perceiving the film of oils and debris that's on the surface that was in the ice. So getting ice machines out of apparatus bays is an important thing to do. If we're storing food supplies, vending machines that are in apparatus bays or um, potentially contaminated spaces, those kinds of contaminants can get into the vending equipment, it might get into the, onto the surface of the bottle of water that you then drink, and then you're ingesting it. So taking all food, all beverages, and paying attention to what's stored in the bays should not be something that's transferred to the other parts of the station. Perfect. I, I kind of talk about a lot of times how diesel exhaust goes really anywhere and everywhere. So uh, just like you said, with the, whether it's the ice machines or the pot machines or drinking fountains you know when you're when you're drinking out of the drinking fountain out of the bay it's just to me as diesel exhaust flavored water that's that's really yeah. all it is yeah and you know from for many years um the exhaust wasn't wasn't treated wasn't captured wasn't filtered and it got into the spaces so with existing stations in particular unless it's been thoroughly industrially cleaned, it's likely that the surfaces, the surfaces are contaminated. And putting your hand on them allows your hand to pick up those types of contaminants. Again, if you touch your mouth, if you touch your skin, it allows those contaminants to transfer via absorption or ingestion, or even just through respiration, through breathing into the system. So I know in the city of Boston, Commissioner Finn is being very aggressive. Their building stock is extremely old. I think he says the average age of the station is 75 years. Uh, and they have a number of stations that go back into the 19th century that are still active. They have never been thoroughly cleaned. So if you think of tens um, and maybe even over 100 years worth of accumulated exposure to carcinogens and contaminants. It's really a toxic environment. He's going in with industrial um, hygienists and cleaning out, cleaning all the wall surfaces, replacing the ceilings, replacing all of the um, absorptive floor materials, um, and really being very thorough in trying to clean that environment. They can't, 
necessarily replace the station, um, but he can be aggressive about trying to clean it. No, he's, and he's being so proactive. You know, uh, they made, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Paul, but they made a great video a couple of years ago. I still show it to, you know, whenever, whoever's taken my class, because it's just so personal yeah. um, of, of the struggles of Boston. And, and I always, I always ask everybody like, you know, what's the difference between the fires in Boston and your department? And granted, they probably, they don't fight anywhere near the fires that the Boston Fire Department fights, but the fires are the same. And that's the point. And all it takes is really one fire for us to, you know, get exposed to some of this nasty stuff. And that may be the one, you know, yeah. 20, 25 years down the line. Yeah. Now, uh, another thing I always talk about is, and you touched on it, is that, you know, absorption. Um, testicular cancer, according to the University of Cincinnati, right down the street from me, number one cancer we get, or scrotum is 300% more absorbent. And by the way, I, I made a joke just the other day. I was talking about this. I never thought in my life, I would have never predicted the amount of times that I've had to say scrotum and, and, <laughs> and be serious <laughs> about it. But it's an issue. Yeah. So if you're able to, you know, I always talk about it, you got to wash your hands before using the restroom. It's the polite thing to do. It's how you're probably raised to wash it afterwards. But for us, because of everything we touch, we got to wash it beforehand. Which... <laughs> All right. Now, once again, that was Paul Erickson with his Hot Zone Fire Station design. You can listen to more Paul on episode 15. So next up, and this is going to be the last one I play in the best of, is uh, my friend Lillian Carney from Carney Strong. Now, her episode was pretty early on. Episode 4, uh, A New Hope for all you nerds out there. Um Lillian in this clip is going to talk about being a firewife and you know, dealing with uh, her firefighter husband succumbing uh, to cancer and just why it's so important that we do everything we can to be able to get through our career, to be healthy, to enjoy our retirement and, and be there for your spouse and be there for your family. So with that being said... Roll the clip. From my standpoint, from the firewife side, from the fire family side, I didn't have anybody telling me, hey, tell your husband to do this. Make sure he's doing that. Make sure he's showering. Ask him about this. Do this. Make sure this is in place. And I realized that I, Jim, you've met me couple times, you know that I'm not a quiet person and I just can't sit on the sidelines when there's something that's weighing me down. And I realized that I have an opportunity and I have a voice to tell people what will happen if you don't start making changes now. And I am not saying that a firefighter is going to get diagnosed. I'm not saying that in four months he will pass away. What I am saying is these are the possibilities of what lie in front of you. And please learn from our cancer story, that I don't want another family to have a cancer story because flat out, it sucks. Um, it just does. I mean, knowing that, knowing that my daughter graduated high school and when she graduated, she had probably the biggest cheering section around um, of all of her high school, but her father wasn't there. And even though she had an amazing, amazing, supporting, loving group of people, None of them were Josh Carney. And I can't, I can't fix that for her. I can't replace him. No one can replace him. 
no one is going to be able to fill that hole in her heart. Not mine either. But, but so there's just so many things that you can do starting now. I don't care if you are a firefighter who's 20, who's 30, who's 40, or who's 50. It doesn't matter how old you are. You have to start in all of your prevention methods now. You have to start by doing these things that are in the Carney Strong acronym, taking a shower, you know, doing your on-scene growth decon, taking care of your health and your, you know, making sure that you're eating, you're eating healthy and you're exercising, making sure your department has a safety committee. Um, and doing all these things now, it's, there's no guarantee that, you know, someone won't be diagnosed with cancer, but if we can prevent it as long as, or as much, or as how often as we can, then, then taking our cancer story and spreading it is worth, it's worth, it's worth the hardship. It's worth the heartache that we have. Um, I could go on about it, but no, you're good. You know, the first day that I actually met you was October 20th last year. Yes. Yep. It was, it was the day after the one year anniversary of his passing. So, um, you know, you spoke at, at our Miami Valley firefighter cancer and, and wellness conference and, uh, Good plug. Uh, well, I wasn't even going to talk about this year's coming up in October 24th, 25th in Beaver <laughs> Creek, Ohio. You get tickets on brothers up and brothers.org. Good job. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, first time I ever met you and I, and I got to I got to actually, before I think we even really talked, I, I, I got to see you, uh, go in front of the class and, and talk about everything. And, you know, it's one thing being a firefighter, I think, and seeing all my brothers and sisters diagnosed and everything, it's still impactful. But what we don't see very often is the other side, the end result, um, the families right. in the aftermath. And you, you know, are, are kind of, I mean, you're, you're running with that position and trying to do the best with it. And it's, to me, it's super impactful and, and the amount of courage you have to have to do that because you are essentially just, you have an open wound all the time. Yes. You're very yeah. vulnerable. I mean, this is, you know, you're, you're keeping him alive and his thoughts and, and, uh, and trying your best to make sure that this doesn't happen to any other fire families, any other firefighters, you know, the big picture of things. So, it is an uh, aspect that isn't talked about very often. Um, I think it's because but it needs to be. Well, it, it definitely needs to be, absolutely. Yeah. But um, I think we're scared about it. We are. We are. Um, you, you know, it's. It, I've learned a lot. Um, I've obviously read several grieving books, every several self-help books, and you know, after your spouse passes. Um, and, and one thing that it keeps coming back to is that everyone's, everyone's, everyone handles grief differently. Um, and, and not just, and not just grief. I don't, I don't relate it to after his passing. I relate it to the, the day that he was diagnosed with cancer um, and how we handle things is different and nothing should be, we shouldn't compare our story and our journey to the person sitting next to us uh, because that, that would number one, that would really hurt. So there was recently a firefighter in Josh's department who was diagnosed um, with cancer. And I am happy to report he is actually doing great now, um, had some surgery to remove it. And by the grace of God, I mean, he is he's on the up and up. And I am so happy for him and so elated for him. And 
when I found out number one, that he had cancer, it was, I knew, I feel like I knew before just looking at his face before he told everybody, I just feel like he had something weighing on it. He didn't want to tell me. Um, and so, and then, but just then to hear that, that he's on the up and up now for his family, for his wife, I'm so, I'm so happy for them. And then I do have that moment of that's not fair. That's not fair that that someone else's story, and I really shouldn't relate it directly to this firefighter just because I don't want them to listen and think that I resent them because I don't. Um, I don't resent anybody who says, hey, my husband's going back to work or, hey, you know, like life is good because the cancer is going away and the, the cancer has gone. Um, but I do have that those moments of why couldn't my story be different? Um, and then I remind myself that I don't go down that rabbit trail and I don't, I don't compare myself to others. And I, you know, this, this, this is, this is the journey that we have in life. Um, and this is my journey and I, I'm going to do my best to stay as positive as I can through most of it. Jim, I will tell you, I'm not going to lie. I cry every day. Um, but that's, but I cry and then I get over it and then I move on. Or I'd shake my head. Um, you can't see me shaking my head right now, but you know, I like to just do a little head bob. So when the tears start coming, you do a little head bob, they wipe away and they're gone. Um, I try not to let my moments turn into hours and days. Um, but that's that's how I handle it. I I could not I could not get through life. I could not make such an impact with Carney Strong. I could not be so um, supportive um, for my daughter if I had um, grief days. So I have grief moments. Um, and, and I do, I am an open book and I do, I do have an open wound and I share it. Sometimes I feel like I share it too much. Other times I feel like I don't share it enough. Um, and so I'm trying to find this happy medium to remind people that number one, grieving is okay. It is, it is a process that we all have to go through no matter what type of grief you have. And no matter if it is a spouse or your parents or a, or a child or an animal, we all have to go through the grieving process and we should not compare our grief to somebody else's because we do not live or walk in their shoes. We do not have the same life as them. Um, for me, my entire life, I have been the more positive, upbeat, find uh, the happy in everything kind of person. Um, and if you, if Josh was around to tell you, he would tell you that's one of the reasons why he fell in love with me is because I do try to find the positive in everything. And I do try to make sure that, um, you know, if we do have moments of, of bad or sad, that they are not days. Um, and I, but I try very hard for that. So, so for me, um, my therapist tells me that I grieve just like everybody else, but I feel like I grieve a little bit differently um, because I do have, I do try to find the positive, but Carney Strong has also, I think, played a huge role in that for me because it has given me, it's given me a different purpose in life. Um, before Josh was diagnosed, the couple of years beforehand, uh, I was one of the um, event organizers for a local um, St. Baldrick's um, event, which is St. Baldrick's is an organization that, excuse me, um, you go and you shave your head and you raise money for childhood cancer research. And so for the couple of years prior to before Josh was diagnosed, I was one of the event organizers for a local event here. Um, got a lot of guys from the firehouse to shave. I even got Josh to shave off his mustache, which was fantastic. Um, I actually shaved the first year. Um, but I, I, I felt like that was such an impact on my life that we were able to help and do something for others. And then when Josh was diagnosed, obviously, you know, we kind of shifted, we shifted paths a little bit, but, but to be able to take my grief and, and, and share it and, and put a face with 
firefighter cancer and to get people to understand that it sucks and you want to be able to do everything that you can now so that you can retire um, and you can enjoy your life with your family. Um, it's, it is, it's a big deal. We never, we take it for granted. We take life for granted until we are affected by it. Um, and so I'm trying my best to get the firefighters and their families and their spouses to understand that learn from me, learn from our cancer story. Don't have your own cancer story. If you can do anything to prevent it, why would you not? All right. Thanks again to Lillian Carney of Carney Strong. You can find out more regarding her organization at CarneyStrong.org. Well, I think that wraps it up for me here. Uh, thanks again to Sarah, Jen, Paul, and Lillian uh, for the uh, being able to be put together for the best of the 25 Live Volume 1. So look forward to uh, talking uh, to you guys next week. I'll actually have a guest with me instead of just me talking and old clips. But uh, should be some interesting stuff coming up, so stay tuned. Thanks again. Take care.